Before we begin, I want you to understand just how seriously I take my responsibility. The mere act of asking a question is the first step on the path to damnation. Heresy. The Imperium of Man was not built by those who questioned. It was built on the iron will of the Emperor, in the Orthodox, and above all, obedience. In our Imperium, we have a single institution that is pure enough to ask questions, and the Ordos of the Inquisition will now put you to the question. where each episode, with the help of a guest, we delve into a topic around Warhammer 40,000. And today I am joined by Dr. Dave Stone. Dave, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, yeah, thanks for having me on. So I'm Dave, I'm a doctor of early medieval history and archaeology. I specialised in looking at England in the 9th and 10th centuries and the unification. I've been playing 40k really since I was a teenager, Dropped out a little bit at university and then really got back into it in a big way when I was doing my doctorate. So with your doctorate, was that um, avoiding doing your doctorate that got you back into 40k? Absolutely it was, yes. (laughs) So do you remember the first time that 40k really grabbed you? Was there a kind of a particular game or, or moment that you can really place? I can pin it down to a specific model. It was the Metal Imperial Guard Stormtroopers, the old ones that came before oh, the Castle wow, okay. with those armoured hoods. It was the issue of White Dwarf when the, the new Imperial Guard had just been released, and I was very taken with them. But I remember seeing a picture of the Metal Space Marine Sergeant. It's for anyone who recognises it, it's the guy who's got the big bolter slung across his chest. Uh, and he's waving around a plasma pistol in one hand and a, an all specs in the other. And something about that model to about 12, 13 year old me was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and from that moment onward, I wanted to play Imperial Guard. Uh, straight off the bat, I think, you know, most people get into the hobby and their first army is probably a pile of Space Marines. I had the requisite pile of Space Marines, but straight off of the bat, that was it. I was a Guard player. Do you play Guard right through to today then? Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I'm a veteran of the old kind of 5th edition mechanised veteran lists uh, all the way through to today's giant pile of tanks. <laughs> and what is it about the guard that particularly appealed to you? Uh, there's a really nice Dan Abnett quote, because someone asked him once, uh, you know, the Imperium of Man aren't the good guys. How do you write these heroic narratives? And he says, something can be the most horrible setting, even though the regime and the, the background might be awful there's still space for these stories of individual heroism. And what I love about the Guard is you've got this this setting that's so grim and bleak and awful in so many ways, and you've got humanity facing down eldritch terrors from before the dawn of time and rampant bioweapons that run on some bizarre logic that defies the laws of physics and gene-enhanced supermen backed by demons. And then you've got average Joe and Jane that strap on a, a piece of body armor and pick up a rifle and 
climb into a tank and go out and face the worst horrors that the galaxy has to offer. Sure. And, you know, sure, the Imperium of Man is this awful, terrible, fascist dystopia, but that probably doesn't mean so much to everyday people trying to do their best to stem back yeah, the tide I mean, of Yeah, on the battlefield, when you've got a swarm of hormigons coming at you, you're not thinking of any morality, you're just thinking of survival. So, yeah, it's very relatable. Yeah, it's what I love so much about the, the faction is they're that human window into the setting and it's through exploring so much of their mode and you know, it's it's through their triumph but also, you know, they're the human eye that we see the, the horror that the future society of the Imperial Man Yeah, absolutely. And it's only by seeing those small figures running around at the feet of the Superman that you actually get that sense of scale. I always appreciate it when you get that guardsman perspective and suddenly a marine arrives and they do seem like the angels of death they don't seem like the normal thing the guards have never seen one before and it's this terrifying ally but something beyond their capability of, of believing that they're human almost you just know them as, as these kind of saviors from beyond and so are you just a guard player or do you dabble with other gaming systems and or other factions within 40k so the other game I'm playing a lot of at the moment is Aeronautica Imperialis. I love it because as a guard player who has lots of slow-moving infantry and big shooting turns, it's fast, it's frenetic, it's fun, it's you know quite often utterly ludicrous. I've been playing a lot of introductory games with different people uh, at our club recently, so I think that's done taking off. Uh, I like Necromunda as well. I play quite a lot of Necromunda. I love the small narrative. You get that the you know the gang building and the the real uh, stories and plots that you And the you swings of when you play that game because it's just on that one dice and there is that real potential for for just one scabby ganger to do something epic just by rolling a couple of sixes in a row. Yeah, as the, there's, there's the games when you get the rest of your gang of bottled and run uh, and one determined Escher ganger with a shotgun pulls off a headshot and <laughs> wins the game single-handedly, yeah. that kind of thing. You know, you get these wonderful little stories um especially when you get a campaign that's been going for a little while um and i've also recently dipped a toe into to playing age of sigma oh, okay well. i resisted for a while were you a <laughs> fantasy battle player i wasn't actually that much no i i you know i think everyone has a, a has a little phase where they they dabble in fantasy battle i was mostly a 40k player as a, as a teenager but i've recently i was won over by uh the, the, the old Harryhausen-style skeletons, for what, what what the vampire counts, the, the soul-blight gravelord, as they are now. The little harryhausen skeletons and the, the vampire lord on a dragon, who is just the, the most rad <laughs> model that Games Workshop yeah, I think that ever Yeah, that faction made. is stacked full of absolutely fantastic minis. I and mean, the, the AOS ranges are knocking out of the park at the moment. Yeah, their design studio has really just been fantastic. Some of the models are excellent. And they're just it's just a lot of fun to play. It's such an easy system to get into. You know, it's nice and straightforward and quick and you know it's it's a it's a good fun game to kind of just play on an evening with friends you don't have to write off an afternoon for a whole for a campaign yeah yeah okay then so if i took you up to warhammer world and just gave you a shopping cart and said to you go and build your dream army what would it be well short of a titan maniple uh it would probably be some <laughs> kind of <laughs> Uh, some kind of Krieg-based guard heavy armor list. There's the, the wonderful book series. Uh, there's Baneblade and uh, Shadow Sword. And the, there's Regiment in that, the, the Paduan heavy armored. I really enjoyed those books. You know, they, they were really fun novels. So some kind of, yeah, guard heavy armor. Okay, so you'd get all of those 
Ev- ev- every Forge single world variant. heavy tanks, all the big <laughs> resin hunks. I mean, like you'd, you'd have to develop some pretty hefty muscles to carve that lot around. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, that's the uh, that's the infinite shopping basket of dreams. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, then, Dave. So, can you tell us what are we going to be talking about today? So it's one of the interesting things that I always think looking about the the way the Warhammer lore has developed over time and the way that the uh, the universe of the Imperium of Man has been created in the four decades almost that you know we've been enjoying our hobby. The Imperium of Man is born in the 80s out of these this British counterculture fear of right-wing autocratic governments that were kind of springing up in the resurgence of the far right. It's frequently said, you know, the Imperium is this parody of fascist autocratic states and why they go wrong. It's, you know, it's another side of the Mega City One in, in uh, Judge Dredd. So on the face of it, this very fascist regime, and, you know, it very much is a, a fascist regime. But in broadening it out and kind of filling in the lore of the past several decades, what's emerged is the Imperium of Man actually having a lot of parallels with the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, in particular... Uh, a lot of parallels between kind of the early Imperium and the Carolingian Empire. And of course, what makes that interesting is that the, the fascist states that the Imperium of Man is on the surface a parody of, they themselves hark back to the Holy Roman Empire. So there's really interesting historical uh, and real life political and historical parallels. That sounds brilliant. Well, let's get into it then. This was not a topic which I'd heard anyone ever mention. And while I was doing a bit of research for the episode, I mentioned it to quite a few people. I even managed to contact a couple of French people who were into 40k. And their reaction was pretty much, you what? So I'm really hopeful that this will actually be new to a lot of people. And it was really exciting for me to to do a bit of research and, and learn. And I think before we really delve into that, we sort of need to touch a little bit on the history of the Imperium of Man that we're talking about, and also a little bit about who Charlemagne himself was, because I think that as a historical figure, he's really not that well known in in the British-speaking world. I may be proved wrong by by lots of people scorning me, but I kind of think of myself as fairly historically literate, but I really didn't know very much. So I took notes when you first mentioned it about what I actually knew about him, and it pretty much came down to I thought he was sort of the founding father of France and that as a myth- mythological figure, he was the origin of, of like medieval chivalry and he sort of had almost like King Arthur-like myths about him. But that was more or less it. How am I going so far? Yeah, pretty much. And it's there's an immediate parallel there between you know, Charlemagne and the, the Emperor of Man in that He's probably this figure that everyone will have heard of. There was a pop song a couple of years back called Charlemagne. It's one of these names that floats around in the public consciousness. But when you actually drill down to Charlemagne the person, Charlemagne the, the Emperor of France, Charlemagne the deeds, uh, you know, he's, he's not taught. Uh, it's not something we know very much about. He's this kind of nebulous figure in our pop history. But he is he's very important. He does lay kind of lays the foundation of a lot of European history and he's this big cornerstone figure and it's almost more important the way subsequent generations and you know right through to today talk about Charlemagne and the way Charlemagne is revered and reviewed uh, and his weight as a historical myth figure almost is almost as important as Charlemagne the person. 
Yeah, sure. And so that's why, after I'd done a bit of research, I kind of moved him from a little bit of a King Arthur-like figure to a sort of a combination of King Arthur and King Alfred, where you've got like the real achievements and the mythological place that he holds. I think it's important that we just have a quick overview of the uh, history of the Imperium of Man up to the heresy period. And so we begin with the Dark Age of Technology, which was in, in all the lore we have, which isn't a huge amount. It's the high point of humanity. And the marvels of technology, everything is considered to be the peak of civilization. And in the Imperium of 40k, they kind of live in the ruins of these marvels. And then after that, we've got what is called the Age of Strife, or Old Night, which is where there was civil wars with the Men of Iron and that sort of thing. And then the appearance of Psychers, the dawn of the warp storms, and the sort of the general fall of this galaxy-spanning civilization. And that seems to last about 5,000 years. And then we come to the rise of the Emperor, which is on terror, where he has the unification wars. Uh, so it's the creation of the Custodes, the Thunder Warriors, and then after that, the Marine Legions. And then after he's, um, after he's worked his magic on terror, he goes to Mars and allies with the Mechanicus, and then begins the Great Crusade. And, of course, we know where the Great Crusade ends with, with the Horus Heresy. If we just have that sort of broad outline in place, then we can look at how Charlemagne actually tracks onto that. And so, over to you, Dave. Starting with this idea of the Dark Age of Technology, in the history of Europe, is that analogy to Rome, then? Yeah, absolutely. And in particular, again, there's a huge amount of things that we've rewritten about the way... Rome worked as a as a technological basis in the way the medieval period worked, but in the kind of collective what we'll call the pop historical consciousness, Rome is this high point of classical technology and civilization. It's commonly seen that Rome falls apart and that the dark age is happening. It's not a term that we we use anymore in academia. Oh, what do you call it now? So we tend to call it the early medieval period. We, we get selective Dark Ages. So there is a Dark Age in Britain that lasts about a century. Uh, there's a period where we just don't have any textual sources. We do have archaeology for that period and we have data sources that try and fill in the gaps. But we haven't got any direct sources from that period. So they are little Dark Ages. But the period as a whole, somewhere somebody is always writing something down. The Age of Strife is the, the kind of the pop history Dark Age. Yeah, so with the guys who made up the 40k history, they were sort of big old history nerds. And in the 80s and 90s, would that have been still a pretty popular conception of, of what the Dark Ages were? Oh, absolutely. And I think, I believe Rick Priestley, in fact, studied classics and ancient history. But, you know, even today, you know, the Dark Ages is, is a concept that it's very hard to kill uh, in, in certain fields. Yeah. Okay. So this is Age of Strife stuff. Um, so a Dark Age equivalency. And so, sorry, tra dragging it back to 40k a little bit. Um, so we've got the Dark Age of technology roughly analogous to Rome, seen as this mythical high point where everything was shining. And then Old Knight and the Age of Strife. And then onto the Unification Wars. And I think this is where you were talking about the historical parallels of, of the Emperor as Charlemagne is very, very precise and an almost like mappable event to event isn't it yeah i mean certainly you know we look at the unification wars as the, in, in the law you know it's it's one of these periods that we don't learn a lot about but we learn you know the the emperor created his thunder warriors and they are these super soldiers with which he outmatches everyone 
he fights these long and laborious campaigns against people who are throwing around all kind of weird bits of dark age of technology and he fights demon armies and he fights mad max style armies and everything else and he slowly slowly takes over the earth and then that's his springboard to go out and take on the galaxy and so would earth be analogous to france in this yeah yeah earth in this period is kind of the fractured remains of the western roman empire essentially uh so you know you've got what will eventually become france is kind of um at this point it's a coalition of frankish kingdoms in northern france you've got a number of rump states in kind of what was gaul you've got um, the kingdom of lombardy which is kind of in northern italy you've got byzantine holdings still in italy you know the the what calls itself the roman empire is still holding parts of italy you've got the saxons in the low countries uh, and there's a long campaign to pull all this together sure and then we've got the the great crusade and so that's after the alliance with the mechanicum so head to mars and he's sort of anointed as this godlike figure by the mechanicum or at least officially they accept him as the omnissiah obviously in mileage way varies the actual belief in graham mcneil's mechanicum there's definitely some people who are like mm, is he though and and so can you talk a little bit about what you see as the parallels to Charlemagne's later career there yeah absolutely so you have to kind of go back a little bit to the, the Frankish kingdoms which pop up which Charlemagne events is, is the end product of. There's some very canny manoeuvring between the leaders of those kingdoms and the church and the, the, the early Frankish kings are very much pagan and obviously they are they're people who move into the the limits of the Roman Empire they are they're limitani in the in the Roman speak so they move into these Christianizing Roman areas um, and when everything falls apart, the church is is what's left behind so is that representing a sort of the only real sort of central authority yeah and uh, there's augustine of hippo is this uh, late classical writer he's writing at the time when rome is starting to fracture and fall and he's at the uh, in north africa when it's being under siege by various groups and he writes this book called the city of god and in it rome is falling apart politically and he envisions the catholic church as this successor state in and of itself he says you know all of these different kingdoms are popping up well what unites them it's their faith and it's the duty of the church to essentially be this link with the past uh to be to you know ensure continuity uh and to ensure stability and to keep the vision of rome and the because of this point of course christianity is the imperial faith in rome Sure. Uh, it's the it's the job of the church to kind of keep that imperial vision alive, and so the church is very canny. It presents itself to these these Frankish successor states, which is kind of carving out territory in northern France, and says, "Well, you want to run a kingdom, you need paperwork, you need bureaucracy. You know, you can't just uh, you can't just trust that Hrothgar is going to keep his word." Uh, you know, he's going to serve you because you give him land. You need a piece of paper with which you can you know, keep him under control. And this is where the concept of the Holy Roman Empire comes from, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not a kingdom in the sense of it gives you this area of land. It's saying that you are the representative of our fate. As I say, it's like analogy to the Omnissiah here is that when the emperor goes, the Mechanicum essentially say he is our representative now. And he carries our standard. He doesn't rule us, but he is, yes, yeah, so the avatar of, of the faith. And 
that kind of omniscient cult analogy to the Catholic Church absolutely blew my mind when you mentioned it at first. It was like that, that would never occur to me because they're not such an explicitly religious organisation as like the ecclesiarchy who come later in the history. Yeah, absolutely. And Charlemagne is, for the longest part of his, his life, he's king of the Franks and he's king of the Franks and king of the Lombards. He accrues all these titles and it's not until 800 itself that he becomes he becomes the Roman emperor. And it's the Pope. It's the Pope that gives him this title. And it, it's saying, you know, you have the authority of the church as as this centrifying. And in, in return, you're the Roman emperor. It's your job to keep us alive. It's your job to further our role in proselytizing Christianity in the border areas of Europe, to maintain Christianity where it's established. It's your job to defend the Pope, defend the papacy. It's your job to to protect us and further our laws. And in return, you get our authority. You get to use the church throughout the medieval period. The church is really kind of the, the scaffolding that keeps European states going. It's the bureaucracy. And you know, today we think of technology as smartphones or satellites and communication, that kind of thing. Writing and the ability to have a literate bureaucracy is a really important technology and it is a technology that is almost entirely centralized under the auspices of the church and that's very definitely what the mechanicum are doing yeah absolutely the the technology which they're supplying other spaceships like they are the ability to get places and yes yeah they are they're mutually interdependent but without the blessings of the mechanicum then the, the Emperor of Man stays as this little provincial king, essentially, on terror. Yeah, absolutely. What you get with the Franks is the same thing that you get in England around roughly the same period. Kingship is based, kind of all of society is based around this thing called the Gesith. It's the close personal retinue, kind of the warband that surrounds a king. You know, if you, if you read Beowulf, it's the band of Geats that travel with Beowulf to the land of the Shieldings. He is their gift giver, their ring giver, and they are his battle brothers. And, and that's how he cre- gets their loyalty, is there is an element of, of bestowing treasure on them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's very much, you know, personal loyalty. It's not loyalty to a, a state. It's loyalty to the king as a person. And he rewards you with gifts and, and honour and glory, and you reward him with service, which is great, but it severely limits your ability to project power over a large area, you know. Yeah, and so going back to how that maps onto 40k, where do you see that? That's kind of, that's, that's kind of what we see in the Unification Wars, you know. Um, Earth fragments apart, because, you know, there's this idea that there was at some point a kind of a united terror. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this kind of terror thing, and that all falls apart. So what you get in, in the Unification Wars is all of these little kings popping up and um, they're all doing their own thing. You know, there are some places where people are summoning armies of demons to keep their enemies in line. And then just down the road, there are people who have, you know, vat-grown, gene-enhanced super soldiers. And then there's Mad Max Fury Road, 10 yeah. miles down the lane, that kind of thing. And you've got all of these things. And the gene gene splices on the moon. <laughs> That's always yeah, intrigued exactly, me quite yeah. a lot, yeah. All of these wonderful little little states, and you know, all these this wonderful wonderful little bits of lore that are popping up, but it's everyone doing their own thing. That's the equivalent of, you know, the fact that you've got twelve separate kingdoms between the Thames and the Severn at one point. Yeah. Um, um and, and what you were talking about there, like that sort of bringing a 
a group of people around him, like a kind of a personal loyalty thing. The emperor manages to dial everything up to 11 from your historical analogy because he's immortal and because he is massively powerful you know, as a psyker. And so he has that, that ability to project power further across the galaxy than Shotman is. But they just say it's that, it's that classical Warhammer thing of taking something and turning it up to 11. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of problems with what we call the great man theory of history. But in some cases, why do certain events happen? It comes down to an individual's personal charisma, somebody's personal decisions. You know, someone who is able to respond to a situation and, and rally support that perhaps is, you know, wouldn't have happened elsewhere. Yeah. One of the things which I remember, particularly from the early Horus Heresy books, was the Remembrances Order. And when I was doing a bit of research, which you pointed me towards the right places about Charlemagne, it's like one of the things which Charlemagne appears to be really good at was he recognised the value of mythologising himself and as a propagandist. And so that the quote, the quote which I've, I've written down was um, that he surrounded himself with artists and writers and academics and so he kind of, he controls who wrote and why they were writing and what they were writing about. And that seems to be really, really strongly present in the way the people who were writing the early Horace Heresy novels like really took that on. Yeah, and it's one of these really interesting angles because if the, the real parallel with Charlemagne is Alfred in England. And then, you know, we, call, we talk about the, uh, the Carolingian Renaissance and we talk about the Alfredian Renaissance. And the interesting thing with Alfred is that um, before he becomes king... Alfred is actually really well educated. He doesn't think he's going to be king, so he trains to be a priest. And then his brothers all die or are killed, and he ends up kind of developing into the, the, the kingly role that he didn't think he was going to have. But Charlemagne is quite different. You know, he essentially seizes power in a coup, but he's not well educated at all. It's said that Charlemagne doesn't learn to write until he's an adult. Apparently, he supposedly has quite terrible handwriting. He's not particularly literate. We've got some correspondence you know we have surviving correspondence between him and, and king off of mercia and you can tell he hasn't written it you know he's dictated it sure but he understands the power of cultivating writing and learning academia and it said uh, one of his big concerns is that you know there's this lack of literacy and it's probably something that he's quite self-conscious about himself you know? he, he understands there's this lack of literacy this this lack of written sources and if you can encourage that then of course you can then control the story that's told about you and that's the next thing i was really wanting to hone in on is when we were chatting before you really were talking about the justification for empire you were talking about how as the holy roman empire anointed by the church very much his first order of business was pacifying the local kings and stuff and calling it a reunification of the roman empire when actually that was nothing of the sort these people had never been part of, of that greater roman empire and you, you were talking particularly about how that, in the Great Crusade, it is kind of accepted by everyone in the Imperium that this is a reunification war on a grand scale. But actually, you were talking about some evidence in some books which you've read about the Valhallans and White Scars, that that wasn't true. Yes, the trouble with, you know, with, with Warhammer and having such a, a deep set of lore that's evolved over four decades almost at this point is you kind of have to break things down and you have to go there's a there's a a, a watsonian and, and a doyalist reason for everything right you know <laughs> right, yeah so our listeners don't know imagine in the sherlock holmes novels you know they're written by arthur conan doyle but they are presented as being written by dr john watson so everything that happens in the story you have to think well there's a an in-universe justification, right? That's the Watsonian reason. And quite often the, the Watsonian one is because you put something in because you think it's cool and then you think, oh, 
I need a reason for that. You can tell at some point they, you know, they came up with the, the Valhallans and they thought, yeah, let's do Imperial Guard that looked like Second World War Soviets. And, uh, oh yeah, let's do a, a Mongol-themed Space Marine chapter um, that follow a guy called the Great Khan, because that's cool. But then you need to justify it in your in your lore. You know, you need a reason why this is going around. And there's some really interesting lore that, in the, that kind of crops up around the, the, the end of the Unification Wars where it talks about all of the planets that go out. We tend to think of uh, the Terran Federation or the Terran Union or the Terran government during the Dark Age of Technology. And it's mentioned that what you actually get is lots of little groups that splinter off and separate. Because, you know, if you look at something like star trek you get the federation and everyone respects everybody else and everyone respects all these other values but then you look at something like the dark age of technology you know you think these are people who build spaceships with guns that can delete stars and delete things from the time frame and these are people who create a planet like fenris for fun you know they're probably not good guys and you get this interesting thing where lots of the planets that we see are formed by these kind of ethno-nationalist groups that go out into space uh, and start their own planets. Yeah, so they were never part of, or they explicitly left in order to be not part of a greater empire. And so when the Great Crusade comes along, I recognise the Imperium are not the good guys, but somehow when I was reading like the, the Horus Heresy books, there is an element of, we are returning somewhere. And actually, that's just propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's one of these things here. Look today, for example, people who LARP as Vikings, right? No one who dresses up uh, and goes along to a historical recreation society as a Viking actually lives in a turf hut and slaughters all of their animals in November and then lives off salt beef for the rest of the year, right? In 40k, you know, you get these societies that go off and they kind of, they fang their own planets and they do their own thing. So why, why are the space wolves apart from being, you know, the wolfiest wolves that ever wolfed, they lean so hard on their Viking jokes is because they're people going off and the original settlers are probably people clinging really hard to this kind of imagined ethno-nationalist identity. Because expats are always more pure than the country they leave. They sort of distill the, what they think of the national essence and head off and create that somewhere. Yeah, and they're clinging to their own thing. And then we're totally told from the imperial perspective that the emperor shows up and goes... Welcome back to the Imperium. Yeah, and so when Charlemagne goes off and he's trying to reunite, in square quotes, Western Europe, and he comes to these various tribal kingdoms which have come in from the West, and they were never part of the Roman Empire in the first place, but it's still couched as a reunification. I think that's a really powerful idea. Yeah, in particular, I mean, the thing that people always talk about that Charlemagne is the saviour of Western Europe. They talk about his battles at Poitiers and his, his kind of defeat of these... Islamic Arabic raiding parties that are coming up from Spain but that's really at the start of his reign and you know once he's established himself as king of the Franks what does he spend all of his time doing he campaigns against the Saxons and the Saxons yeah, like you said, the Saxons are never part of Rome they're they're Germans in Germany and he's you know he's defending Christendom by invading somewhere that was never somewhere that was Christian in the first place. And so if we take the um, the idea of the Crusaders to unite humanity and then do something in the webway to save humanity. And so everything the emperor is doing is about trying to defeat this greater foe. But the way he does that is by the Great Crusade. And again, I hadn't really assimilated this as, yes, there's a lot of killing of alien civilizations, but they just do that by the by, its aim is actually more 
to conquer human civilizations and bring them under the auspices of the emperor. That's sort of, yeah, he spent him spending most of his time trying to conquer other humans for the benefits of, for, you know, sort of it became necessary to destroy this village in order to save it way. And I think that's something which, again, I, I hadn't ever really quite assimilated and talking to you the other day and, and now tonight is really sort of laying clear. And I love that as an insight into where you know, Rick Priestley and, and the later creators still must have been very aware of this because that sort of analogy seems to carry through thematically really strongly. And that's the sort of thing which I'm really had my mind blown by speaking to you and various other people about the, the episodes of the podcast is like how over that 40 years, yes, there's all these different creators, but there's still a through line and it feels very, very strongly intentional that this Charlemagne analogy carries through. Now you're explaining it to us. Yeah, I think you know, it's one of the most interesting things that has come out of the Horus Heresy series is we've always known the Imperium is fascist. We've always known the Empire is, is terrible and evil. But if you look at the 40k lore, the Empire is fallen. Right, you know, it's fallen from this golden age of the Great Crusade and everything was shiny and rationable in this gl glittering age of reason. And since then, it's declined into this horrible, repressive theocracy. And one of the interesting things that's come out of the Heresy series is looking and going, oh, they're still the bad guys. Yeah. The reason, <laughs> why do the Eldar think that humanity is so dangerous? Well, because they are. <laughs> Literally every time they meet them, there's a war. Why, why is the galaxy on fire now? It's because humanity messed up again um, 10,000 years ago humanity messed up and the galaxy is still on fire as a result but if you look at something in the very first book the, you know the Interrex yes so the Interrex are a um, they're a human and alien civilization who intermingle and seem to be relatively peaceful and harmonious by by 40k standards yeah and they're interested in in meeting the Imperium and the Imperium's sole reason is, well, we don't like the fact that you're friends with people that aren't human. So it ends in a genocide. Now, now you mention that. Weren't there examples in that medieval period of small kingdoms over Europe cooperating with the Islamic invaders or the, the, um, so the kingdoms in southern Spain? And they are particularly hated by the church and driven out by crusades because Christianity and Islam intermingling... An example of a kingdom which functioned and wasn't Christianity being completely obliterated by the um, Islamic invaders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing is, of course, that Charlemagne himself, he has friendly contacts with Islamic caliphates uh, in Spain. At one point, he's given an elephant as a diplomatic gift by uh, the Abbasid, uh, who's uh, Harun al-Rashid. You know, he, he gives Charlemagne an elephant. That's a hell of a present. That's... That's a hell of a present. Yeah, that's that's not a <laughs> that's not a bottle of wine and a pack of Ferrero Rocher you say give on someone on the first meeting. You know, there's clearly a a fairly good relationship here. Or you know, it, it, he's showing off and saying, "I'm so powerful, I can give you an elephant as a gift." But either way, these aren't blood enemies. You know, Charlemagne establishes his his southern frontiers essentially throughout the medieval period. You've got, especially in Spain, you've got these these Christian kingdoms that go to war. Sometimes you've got two Christian kingdoms that go to war and one side is backed by a neighbouring caliphate. Sometimes you get neighbouring Islamic sub-kingdoms that go to war and the Christians throw their weight in behind one or the other. The same thing happens in the, so the later Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire has this very messy, choppy history after Charlemagne 
and then it kind of resurges there's a whole parallel you could say between Gilliman coming back and and Otto the first who kind of re-establishes the Holy Roman Empire as this German mm. and is, is it more expansionist at that point aggressively expansionist and one of the things that that does is it continually campaigns a lot of what's now eastern Germany at this point is various Slavic and Wendish tribes and over the centuries they are very brutally brought into the the Christian German fold there are points where he allies himself with pagan kingdoms to go to war with Christians and the Christians he goes to war with quite often are orthodox rather than catholic uh, one of the reasons why Poland is a Catholic country surrounded by Orthodox neighbours is because the the kings of Poland, who interestingly call themselves Karls after Charlemagne, they see which way the wind is blowing and they convert to Roman Catholicism because that will stop the Germans invading them. Right, okay. But we get some really interesting pieces of, of kind of 10th century anthropology of these tribes on the German frontier because the Bishop of Magdeburg He's probably not going himself, he's probably using correspondence, but he has got correspondents who are on campaign alongside these German pagans. And they're going to the towns and the settlements of these German pagans and learning about them and their ways. And he writes these really interesting anthropologies where he goes, you know, it's all rubbish, of course, but this is what they believe. It's, it's interesting that quite often this idea of a unified Christendom really doesn't play out. We tend to think of these Christian kings, everything is this holy crusade and quite often they're they're a lot more pragmatic but in a way that you can tell they're chasing a a secular power mm. they become more powerful because they they will talk the talk but they don't necessarily walk the walk right just chasing up this idea of Gulliman being the the second right now by that stage the mechanicum has lost a lot of its authority it's it's subsumed into the imperium of man but we do have the ecclesiarchy. Now, how do you see the ecclesiarchy's influence being different to that of Charlemagne? So Charlemagne is the reunification wars with the Mechanicum and the Imperium, and then we've got the Second Reich with Gulliman and the ecclesiarchy. How would you characterise the, the church's relationship to the Second Reich then? So in the sentence at this point, one of the interesting things about the later, what we call the Ottonian Empire, it's worth pointing out that the, the Second Reich is um, is the, the German Empire that kind of crops up in the 19th century. That's officially the, the Second Reich. Oh, okay. But um, at this point, the kind of the Ottonian continuation of the Holy Roman Empire. At this point, the church is a lot more subservient. And, you know, it's quite interesting. This is a period where the Pope is very tightly controlled by the Holy Roman Emperor. It's not always the case. There's a period where Otto II upsets the Pope and over winter he hikes up the Alps barefoot to go knock on the door of this castle where the Pope is staying for Christmas uh, and beg the Pope's forgiveness. It's this big public show. But there are times where the Pope says something that the the Emperor disagrees with, so the Germans march on Rome uh, and just put a new Pope in charge. And that's much more the power relationship of the latter Imperium of Man to the Ecclesiarchy. Yes, it has its own voice and it does have its own armed forces, but it, it doesn't have that separate power base in the say, in, in the way the Mechanicum did. Yeah, absolutely. It's no longer this kind of pseudo-independent entity. There are wars over who gets to put the Pope in the Vatican. Yeah, and we've got that, the establishment of the sisters, though where there are internal wars in the Ecclesiarchy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, th- things like the Age of Apostasy are very much based in real elements of European history. You know, there's um, 
you have to feel for the people of Rome. At one point, there's an uprising. So the, the Germans send an army south to keep their Pope alive. And the Pope writes a letter in panic saying, help, help, there's an army marching on Rome. So the Normans then, they send an army up. And the Germans attack Rome and they massacre a huge chunk of the population and they think the Pope is safe and then they leave. And then this Norman army shows up and goes, clearly the people are rioting and they massacre their way through Rome. <laughs> there's huge wars over who's in charge of the papacy. And you know, for, there's a long time when the Pope doesn't even live in Rome. He lives in the south of France uh, because he falls under the auspices of the French kingdom. And you get popes and anti-popes and you know, huge wars. There's one English pope in medieval history, and when he becomes pope, what does he do? He writes a, a bull, which is kind of a papal letter, really, called Lord Abilita, and he writes it to Henry II and says, uh, if you wanted to invade Ireland for any given reason, that's cool with me. As pope, I think it's cool if you invade Ireland. It's clear that the papacy is being used for very explicit political ends, in the same way that the ecclesiarchy is... Again, it's that problem where, from a very modern post-Enlightenment mindset, we might say, well, are they men of faith? Do they actually believe? Or are they just in it for personal power? And you think, well, it's probably still, it's probably the two. You know, I don't think in 40k, you know, there are these people who very much believe in the emperor as a god, but it's, it's a good way to cement their own hold on power at the same place. You know, if you can say the emperor wants you to do this, then... I mean, 40k, when it comes to religion, it's in, it's in a way different place to the real world because chaos gods and, and the emperor are very very definitely present and real in a way that you can't necessarily say that about about that god in that conception the catholic god or, or whatever is, is undisputably real yeah you know it's it's, it's a bit like Ter terry pratchett's Discworld is that you know theology takes a, a slightly different <laughs> tone when when if you annoy a god he can very personally turn up and smite you um, so <laughs> it's in the same thing you have to be think that for a lot of medieval people god is a very real facet of existence sure. you know the, the mentality is perhaps still there even if there aren't blood letters showing up to butcher their way through the south of France every now and then. But then again, actually, it's interesting, you know, uh, so you get these kind of millenarian apocalypse cults that turn up around the year 1000. And in England, that we see this huge upswing in Danish raiding activity. Uh, for most of the kind of the 900s, you get these uh, Magyarish and Wendish raiders who burn huge swathes across Europe. And uh, if you look at, for example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle after the first Viking raid on Lindisfarne, there's this real apocalyptic writing that you know um it depends on who writes it but you know in certain cases uh so if you read for example um gildas who's this uh british christian writer who writes he's writing around the fall of rome in, in britain uh, he writes this book called the exidio britanniae and in that the saxons when they turn up are god's punishment for the sins of the britons um Another place is the Danes are these great evil forces and, you know, when they start raiding Britain in the, the late 700s, um, they are sent by the devil. They are punishment and, you know, it's, it's up to good Christian Englishmen to band together to defeat them. Uh, the Magyars that raid across Europe are God's punishment for the, you know, the, the, the sins of the French or the sins of the German. You know, there is this kind of apocalyptic narrative that when bad things happen it's probably your fault <laughs> and if we map that over into the again turning everything up to 11 it's like that's a real feature of so much of the law is that there is a a falling in purity 
And that's where the chaos gods come in and it creates this eruption of chaos cults and chaos gods who, who emerge and spoil the sector. In some ways, it's that slightly difficult tension that in 40k, yeah, kind of is their fault. I've always been slightly like, whenever you hear about a revolution or rebellion in 40k, it almost always comes back to either gene stealer cult or, or demons. And I was like, why is that? Why? It's a bit frustrating to me, but actually... The way you're describing it now as an analogy, yeah, it's literally God's punishment. And I hadn't seen it that way. I, was, I love it when these things come up. That's brilliant. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> Again, it's just wonderful to hear you chat and, and go, oh, brilliant. Cool. Anyway. Okay, so we're talking about how the ecclesiarchy functions inside the Imperium. Yeah, the ecclesiarchy, if you look at how it exists in 40k, it's a kind of a semi-autonomous deep state, if you want to, they have their own planets, and they're have they, you know, they they're not allowed armies, but, well, they're not allowed men under arms, so you get the sisters of battle and this kind of thing. And that's very much how the church operates. A fantastic example from later medieval, almost Renaissance history is the Borgias, you get the Papal States, which are these private kingdoms that exist within Italy. Cesare Borgia, who leads their armies, they go to war with their neighbours. But also they hold this kind of divine sway over Europe. And to think about Henry VIII, you know, we all talk about, oh, well, Henry VIII split from Rome because he wanted a divorce. Well, Henry VIII split from Rome because he wanted to exercise personal autonomy over his own kingdom. He doesn't like this idea of Rome, this state within a state, holding, telling a king what he can do. So it's getting, you know, getting a little off Charlemagne, perhaps, but there's a lot of parallels this idea of a kind of corrupt church existing within kingdoms that controls things for its own personal end and sits there collecting alms money while people starve to death in the streets. I could be talking about the Imperium of Man or I could be talking about, <laughs> yeah. you know, the Protestant ideas of, of the, the Catholic Church in the 1500s. Yeah, and we are very much dealing... In with these internal politickings and internal power structures where they ostensibly have this say the ends in mind but actually the maintenance of internal power is far more important to them i know i know that quite often you sort of see in conversations sort of people say well if the imperium of man applied its full power to something it's almost unstoppable and it's like yeah but the whole point of the imperium of man is that it can't get out of its own way and, it, and it's actually designed not to do that and the whole the, the way Gulliman does the Codex Estates is, is is explicitly to avoid letting people have too much power because the last time they allowed that to happen then you ended up with this cataclysmic civil war so that actually they're they're more interested in denying one person unified control than they are with defeating the external enemies because although the external enemies are threats and, you know, we as people who know the, the background, we know how terrifying a threat the Tyranids are. But the Imperium are like, well, we've lost a few hundred worlds, a few thousand here, a few billions of citizens, but we don't... It's not really my day-to-day -day existential threat. My day-to-day -day existential threat is the other ecclesiarchy planet over there, which is claiming that they've got the proper shrine. That's what they're more concerned about. These shadow empires which you're talking about, and that was leading on to the Imperium of Man is often seen as fascist, but youth want to give it a more nuanced take than that, also based on the way the way Charlemagne kind of acted and, and created his kingdom. 
yeah, the Imperium of Man as it exists, it's very easy to say the Imperium of Man is fascist, and it's not to say that it's it's not, but it's almost a kind of a fascist lip service, if you will, you know, because again, to be doyalist, it comes out of this the same kind of 1980s British counterculture reaction to Thatcherism and the rise of the far right and Reagan kind of free economics but social repression in America, that kind of thing. It's the same thing that gives us Judge Dredd in 2008, this vision of a hyper-corporate fascist future. And highly authoritarian, but not necessarily idealistic in the same way. Yeah, you can see it if you read Judge Dredd. The, the judges are this horrifyingly fascist government who they maintain that they are the only possible way but megacity one is a crime-ridden hellhole in the same way that the imperium is this awful stultifying horrifyingly repressive place to live but they maintain it's the only way to do things and you know there's a lot of, of lip service fascism there's the horrible repression a lot of it is purely aesthetic so you know you look at the the steel legion of armageddon who are running around in uh uniforms and uh there's the the little lightning symbol that they use is is essentially the flag of the british union of fascists so um <laughs> oh right you know if anyone has an imperial guard tank sprue to hand the little circle with the lightning bolt coming down from it that is the flag of the of the buf just in slightly different colors so you know do be careful that you haven't, you know, you haven't accidentally put a bunch of fascist flags on the side of your tanks. It's a very clear lip service fascism. You know, the eagle is everywhere. There are skulls everywhere. You know, it's really straightforward. It's all the visual clues. But then if you look at how it functions, and this is kind of where it comes into Charlemagne, less Charlemagne the person and more Charlemagne the, the cultural artifact, if you will. The way in which the Imperium functions is is a lot more similar to something like the Holy Roman Empire than it necessarily is to a fascist state. You know, one of the great ongoing tropes of 40K is how information is never shared to the extent that it should be. And one of my favourite bits of sub-fluff and little flavour text in the books was in the Admech Codex in 8th edition, where they, they talked about this um, Skitari Alpha who managed to single-handedly defeat an entire Tyrannid invasion by setting light to some layer of gas in the atmosphere. And of course, this operates this kind of like potentially civilization saving innovation in combat. But because he's only a sergeant equivalent and it's only a backwaters world, he just files a, a report and it just gets put into the Mechanicum archives and nobody ever sees it again. And that's one of the things which they keep on coming back to is how information is never shared and the inquisitors don't share information. So often you'll have these, these recursive threads where you've got some people who are trying to cover up evidence of time travel and there are some people who are trying to expose it and so you just get inquisition agents constantly running after each other in this mad parody of the stuff you're talking about in this in in sort of germany and in these cults of personality states where you've got powerful individuals who are not less concerned but who are equally concerned with getting one up on their their compatriots as they are with actually dealing with external threats and that seems very sort of characteristic of of medieval Europe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to drag things back all the way back to Charlemagne, you know, he has this this empire that he's wrought, and he, I, I guess, he understands that when he dies, he I, he wants to he wants to prevent there being a civil war. So he splits the kingdom between his his three sons. So you get Francia, Germania, and Lotharingia. Uh, and if you look at a map, you'll notice that Lotharingia doesn't exist anymore. 
and it lasts for a little while after his eyes and then immediately what you get is the the basically france and germany immediately start just gobbling up little bits of rotherham you know and the grandsons are all at war with each other and everything falls apart and you know one of the reasons why this this kind of you know, I talked about the kind of the Ottonian resurgency, if you will. One of the reasons that happens is because, especially kind of the, the Frankish emperors, you know, Charlemagne's grandsons and great-grandsons are so busy fighting each other over which one of them is the rightful heir and which one of them stands to properly inherit. And they're so caught up with that that... Um, I once read a really fascinating article that said that studying the, the ninth century in Francia is like being on a... a a darkly lit bus stop in a sketchy part of town between the kind of the, the well-lit city centre of the of the ninth century and the, the lights on the horizon of the, of the 10th uh, or of the 11th century. You're in this dingy bus stop that's, <laughs> that's kind of horrible and unsafe and everyone's just fighting over the, the scraps. Uh, they're so busy arguing that they don't see the muggers coming out of the, the alleyway, that kind of thing. Yeah, and again, if we go back to the Emperor Charlemagne, I mean, after the heresy, he's essentially absent. I mean, he's, he's a figurehead and he still exists, but he, do, he doesn't take any active role. And we see how the 40k setting, or the contemporary 40k setting as opposed to 30k, is very degraded and really not functioning in any meaningful sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's this period in Western Europe, I guess, as the Imperium, by the... Um kind of the 930s, 920s, that period. But you've got these great waves of, of raiders, uh, Magyars, Hungarians, or Huns, you know, as, as we tend to envision them in our pop history. Uh, you've got Wends, you've got these kind of semi-migratory tribal groups that ravage their way completely across Europe. From modern Hungary, you know, they reach essentially the French heartlands. Wow. God, that's something which I had no idea about. It's just kind of accepted that you know they're this thing that happens almost because the french kings if you read uh kind of thietmar of merseburg and some of the chroniclers at the time they kind of despair at this inaction that happens because the the european kings the frankish kings these great heirs of charlemagne are so caught up with holding on to their power and authority they have these big palaces and they they call themselves holy roman emperors but they're doing nothing they're doing nothing to actually defend christendom everything's falling apart on their watch so are these invasions almost considered to be like forces of nature like a plague of locusts yeah it's it's almost it's it's almost accepted that the the you know the magyars will turn up they will burn down the monastery they'll take everything and they'll leave and there's nothing anyone's going to do about it right and so in that analogy then we're sort of talking about tyranids and orcs sort of just conducting their wars across swathes of the of the latter-day imperium and then if they if they threaten something sufficiently important which is offends the pride of one of the local warlords then they'll something will be done about it but it's not like a secure border like the imperium is not a map which has a boundary yeah absolutely and so you know they they know to stay clear of uh no, no one tries to lay siege to, to Aachen or Magdeburg, you know, that kind of thing. But um, no one goes out and stops these raids just happening. Uh, and, you know, and if, you, if you look at the more kind of recent 40k lore, I know there's a lot of comparisons between, I mean, Belisarius' call is literally named Belisarius after this Byzantine general who 
does a lot of work kind of re-establishing imperial holdings uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. But a lot of the, uh, the the Dawn of Fire series that's currently ongoing is talking about Gulliman establishing these these new defensive lines around the Cadian Gate, right? And he's taking the war to chaos and kind of re-establishing these defense lines and everything else. And that's something that Otto in Germany does. He achieves Holy Roman Empire status because he he very temporarily sues for peace and he uses this period to... He builds a chain of fortifications. Uh, and the other thing, it's, it's almost a direct comparison between the, the Primaris Marines and the original Marines. You know, Otto of Germany, he raises these milites, uh, heavily armoured shock cavalry, who are the space marines of their day, if you will. And he raises this force of shock cavalry uh, and he garrisons them along the frontier. And then there are these two battles back to back where he stops paying tribute. He basically says, okay, go ahead and raid me then. And he absolutely devastates this Magyar army that's raiding that uh, far. And then he marches north and he destroys this Wendish army. And he re-establishes this heavily militarised frontier, and that then becomes the basis of expansion and raiding, and kind of a lot of the Germany that we see today comes from this one act of going, you know, it, it, it's it's an Indomitus crusade. You know, it's the, Indom- yeah. it's the Indomitus crusade of the 10th century. He sees himself very much then as the successor to Charlemagne. You know, Charlemagne yeah. takes this kingdom that is beset by raiding and infighting and warfare and he stabilizes the frontier and then goes on these genocidal expansionist wars and then otto <laughs> and you know and otto does the same thing he takes this kingdom that he takes the same title you know and he says well the holy roman empire of charlemagne has been let to crumble by these successes that don't really know what they're doing i'm the holy roman empire now and he brings stability and he militarizes the frontier and he uses this for this, again, quite often genocidal campaign of military expansion. But it's, there's parallels there with the, the kind of the new lore. And, and then it's the same thing. Nothing goes to plan. He dies and there are these Wendish uprisings that happen in the conquered territories. Yeah, we haven't got to that point. Gulliman is still very much alive in, in the current timeline. But, you know, it, it's, it's very much the case of it doesn't all entirely go to plan. But yeah. This almost sounds like material for another episode somewhere down the line. So I think I'd quite want to leave that there. I mean, incredibly fascinating. I had no idea about most of this area of history and I'd never thought about the Intominus Crusade within that historical context. So that's brilliant. Um, but what I wanted to move on to now was the, the mythological component of Charlemagne and about how his place in poetry and this idea of chivalry and romance of the middle ages and we mentioned before in just the beginning bit about how how he has this position he had the paladins who were his his personal guard of cavalry in mythology you'll probably tell me that this didn't exist in the same way but like that's the sort of the common conception is that he established the knightly orders to a degree and he certainly has a set of poems around him and how that relates to the Primarchs and the a Great Crusade. So yeah, I wanted to move on to that because I'd always seen the heresy as a bit of a war in heaven, Milton stuff where you've got like um, Horace going, I'd, I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. The angels clashing so far above the, the humans that it, it, they are the demigods. But yeah, you were talking about them as this Arthurian legend. So I wonder if you want to 
talk talk us through that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, whenever we deal with medieval historical and semi-mythical characters is we need to kind of think about who they were as a person and what their deeds were and how they saw themselves and wanted themselves to be seen and then how they were perceived in kind of contemporary history and the images that are formed around them kind of within the same period and then how they are in history today you know is the, the Churchill quote history is written by the victors is definitely not true just look at the the number of Nazis that we let write books about the second world war but um who writes history why is it written why a hundred five hundred years ago did people write history and how are we interpreting their written history and how are they interpreting things that exist so you know when it comes to Charlemagne we've got Charlemagne the real emperor Charlemagne the figure in kind of 12th and 13th century French literature and so that's then, several I mean 400 years later yeah ab- absolutely um Charlemagne the kind of the figure in medieval literature and then Charlemagne the modern historical fiction and you kind of think well that's you can kind of map that onto who is the, who is the emperor in 30k you know the emperor is a real character who we meet in books and we don't meet him very well you know we get conflicting accounts of him but the emperor is a real character in the books and then we've got the emperor in 40k he still exists but he's this mythical figure and the way he's interpreted and the way he's talked about in that universe and then we've got who is the emperor that we as fans of the hobby as readers of the books as players of the game you know who is that character to us yeah we have the sort of the advantage of the much more broad access to the sources in a sense that's like we, you know, we we've read the realm of chaos books which says that he was kind of born in, in anatolia in the 8th century or whatever you know kind of so that's canon for us and we can trace those while in in universe they don't have any of that knowledge yeah absolutely and it's one it's, you know, it's one of the most interesting things that's come out of the the real new lore especially kind of the dawn of fire series there's a there's an ongoing number of characters who are custodies and it's something that's discussed at the end of gate of bones um spoilers for anyone that's not read gate of bones at the end two of the uh, the custodies characters are uh, on this imperial shrine world and they're arguing about the fact that the emperor is you know there's this whole world that is dedicated to worshiping the emperor as a god and they're talking about how awful it is and that they should cast all this down because to them the emperor isn't a god he's a human and they obviously know the emperor's own wishes that he wouldn't be a god and um, one of the oh, one of the custodians turns to the other and says but we essentially have seen him perform miracles that we fought alongside sisters of battle and their faith has protected them from demons in the, in the events of the book praying saves the imperial task force is saved from the great arch enemy weapon in the book through prayer it's, it's very minus what is for the story when the custodians arrive on the world they teleport in on this, this secret mission through pure chance their teleportation goes slightly awry and they turn up just in time to save this pilgrim who is about to be killed by uh chaos possessed and it's this great miracle she's she's about to die and she's praying to the emperor in her last moments and there's this flash and suddenly there are five custodians who save her from <laughs> certain death yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, it's a shrine world and there's there's a, a, this mixed garrison of sisters and, and these Mordian guard who are holding the planet to the last. And it's this huge morale-building moment for them. They take her back and they say, well, what's going to happen to this girl that we've rescued? And one of the custodians says, well, they'll probably make her into a saint. And they, you know, one of them finds this utterly objectionable and he goes, well, no, she prayed and through pure luck, our teleportation happened to bring us out at the bright, precise time to save her, you know. But it's just a really interesting idea of kind of discussing, well, you know, is the emperor a god? Is the emperor this mythological figure or is he this person that we know? Sure. And again, we are... Well, I think this is worthy of its own episode down the line. I'm, got, I'm booking you in for two or three more episodes here. So at risk of straying too far into to kind of metaphysics at this point. Um. But I think I mean, it's brilliant. But, and I, I definitely want to... I'm, I'm putting this in the notes. I'm going to come back to this at some point. But, you know, we have... But you, you, you were saying about kind of Charlemagne, this figure, and the paladins. You know, the, yeah. the paladins that we have are... They're probably just a literary tradition as we encounter them, which isn't to say that Charlemagne didn't have this close retinue of bodyguards. You know, it's not to say that these people didn't exist, but then they exist in mythology, you know, and they become their own set of characters. And is this where we're talking about them as, as equivalents of the round table? Yeah, so there's this huge overlap. Because people might be a bit confused because they'll think of Knights of the Round Table as Arthurian rather than Charlemagne. And just to cut a very long story short is poems were written about Charlemagne in the 12th century, I think it was. And they had this sort of knightly romantic ideal, which then British writers mapped onto... Arthur, who was this sort of semi-legendary figure in the UK, and it's in those romance poetries, that's where all of the modern characters who we know, like Mordred and Lancelot and Guinevere, that's where they come in. So the Arthurian myths are very much drawn from Charlemagne himself. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of works both ways. I mean, one of the interesting things about King Arthur is that actually, for most of the medieval period, he's actually way more popular in France uh, than he ever is ever is in Britain. So Arthur, as he begins his life, is this nebulous figure in a loose association of of, of Welsh myths, and he's almost he's almost like the emperor. He's this figure of great strength and power, and sometimes he's an overking. He's this wonderful warrior, and we never really meet him in the kind of fragmentary Welsh myths that we have. He's this background figure and sometimes someone claims descent from Arthur or someone says oh he fights with the skill of Arthur or oh the character the main character fights in the army of Arthur but he's this he's this background character and he never really appears until after the Norman conquest of 1066 uh, and Geoffrey of Monmouth writes his history of the kings of, of Britain which is where we get the original story of Arthur from so Geoffrey of Monmouth is He's part of this new post-conquest nobility that is a mixture of, of French and, and British. You know, his, his one side of his family is, is Welsh. And interestingly, the French side of his family is Breton. And the Bretons are ethnically... or well, they're, they're British. You know, they're, it's why Britain is... Brittany is, is Brittany. Uh, is because there's this pre-Roman and potentially post-Roman ethnographic group that spreads from the Brittany Peninsula 
kind of up through Cornwall, Lowland, England, and into Wales. Uh, so there's a whole thing about you know the extent to which he writes about Arthur as a symbol of resistance to Norman hegemony as over Wales as much as it is Saxon. Uh, so, but he writes from this background of what we call the Chanson de Geste. And the Chanson de Geste, or the Songs of Deeds, are this very French tradition. And, you know, they're hugely popular in the kind of the 11th century onwards. And they are... One of the most famous ones you might have heard of is that it's called the Song of Roland. Uh, and it's a, it's a very heavily fictionalised account of uh, the Battle of Roncevaux Pass. Uh, but they are these... Which was a Charlemagne... Uh, which, is a, which is a, a Carolingian battle, yeah. Sorry, Carolingian, that's it. Um, yeah. So they are these songs of heroic deeds and they are where we kind of get this idea of Charlemagne and the paladins. They come from this idea. So, you know, Geoffrey of Monmouth takes this, this rich literary tradition of Charlemagne and his companions and their deeds... And then maps that onto Arthur and the whole thing kind of interweaves and builds. And then you get things like Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, which is this great kind of late medieval text. And it's this uh, that adds in all of the kind of the intrigue and the romance and all of these kind of characters that are part of the modern Arthurian mythos. But a lot of it stems from Charlemagne and these stories of the Charlemagne and the paladins. And it's always it's usually 12 paladins. And the interesting thing was, you know, sometimes it's 11, sometimes it's more. The interesting thing is that they aren't always the same paladins. You know, sometimes the numbers vary. Um, and, you know, a couple of them. Yeah, you know, we can map some of them onto, onto real people. Some of them we can't, you know. Uh, you know, there's uh, Archbishop Turpin, who is probably uh, Tilpinus or Tilpinus, who's Archbishop of Reims at the time. Um, so we can map them onto some of these kind of real people, for example. Um, you know, in the Song of Roland, there is a real Roland. There's a Hrudlandus, who is a who is a governor who is actually killed at the Battle of Roncevaux Pass. Um, but you know, in in the Song of Roland, he and his squire they hold uh, this this pass against hordes of invading of Muslims from Spain. You know, they hold this pass single handedly in time for Charlemagne's army to kind of regroup and win the day. It's this incredibly fictionalised account of events, you know, in which Charlemagne is this kind of... Charlemagne isn't the hero of the story, but he is the, the king in the background. You know, he is the... And he, and he inspires, yeah, he inspires he, them to great deeds. He is, the, he is, the, he is the, the king in the background. He is the, you know, the Richard I in the story of Robin Hood, you know. He is the, the character that's going to come in and save the day as long as we fight for him. So you get this corpus of songs, basically about Charlemagne and his companions who go out and perform these noble deeds and that becomes the basis for the fictionalised Arthur tradition and the really interesting thing is that as these kind of stories spread across Europe you actually get characters that appear in both mm -hmm. okay and so we've got these characters and you said there's a, a mix of numbers are you going to end up telling me that there are about 20 of them <laughs> I wish is, I, is, is, is that where, is that I, where we I wish this, I wish I could be that exact, but you know sometimes there certainly are. If you look at the loyal Primarchs, if you will, mm -hmm. there there are sometimes nine companions and some that we're not so sure about. Maybe they're all Altharius, and certainly <laughs> okay. you know it's one of these things that come in. You know, Horus, for example, it's very easy to do. Oh, he's the fallen son who rebelled against his father. Well, he's is he Lucifer? But you know, in the in the Arthur mythos, there's there's Mordred, who is you know Arthur's nephew, who betrays him, 
and and deals a mortal wound. You know, Arthur, Arthur in the in the Arthur mythos, is mortally wounded but not killed, and he you know he goes and he sleeps forever beneath well you know Glastonbury oh, yes. or yeah or you know where, wherever you believe you know according to whichever source you know Arthur is the sleeping gets to sleep king yeah until such time as Britain needs him again and he will rise again. So, but you know he's betrayed by this. You know, Mordred is is a nephew, but kind of Arthur raises him as a son and he goes and betrays him because he thinks Arthur isn't giving him his his due, you know. And he has Morgana, who's this evil stepmother figure, you know. And there's characters in the Heresy Law, uh, or certain, maybe in the Black Legion books, there's uh, Morgana, I think. Yeah, but in, the, in this, in the Arthur mistress, he's kind of Arab. She whispers this poison into Mordred's ear in the same way that Erebus takes Horus and saves him, but, you know, whispers chaos into his ear. There's that parallel. But then there's also Lancelot. You know, Lancelot is this paradigm of Arthurian knightly gallantry. Well, who is the Emperor's first son? Who is this paradigm of great imperial glory? It's it's Horus. Yes. It's not quite the same because, you know, Lancelot betrays Arthur because he seduces Guinevere. And it's a bit different, but, you know, he, he says... But in the desexualized world, if you desexualize, you know, he says Arthur isn't Arthur isn't being a good husband. Arthur is away, you know, fighting his battles, and he leaves Guinevere, and she's not being taken care of properly. And in that absence, you know, Lancelot steps up. If you look at Horus Rising, you know, he goes, "Well, the Emperor's gone off to Earth, and he's doing his Webway project, and he's abandoned us. He's not taking care of the Empire." Yeah, and going back to that idea of being the ring holder and stuff, he's, he's not fulfilling his, like, duties as a as, as man. Yeah. Okay. And so with the um, with the recruitment of the, of the Primarch, I don't know the stories of all of them, but there are certainly ones uh, like recruitment of Vulcan or uh, Lehman Russ, where the Emperor turns up and challenges them to, um, to contest and things like that. Is that something that happens in the Arthurian... Oh yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, yeah, the 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 paladins of Charlemagne you know, are the these nobles and, and notables. In the Arthurian myth, they are knights usually who undertake these great deeds or pass these great tests of piety or holiness, that kind of thing. You know, think of uh, Gawain and the Green Knight, for example. You know, the story being that the Green Knight allows Gawain to behead him. The implication that a year hence the Green Knight will return and has to let, you know, Gawain has to let him kill him. Uh, and he goes through with it and it's his courage and his piety and kind of holding up his end of the deal that says to Arthur, okay, you know, this is, this is a man we can trust. It's that yes. kind, it's that kind of thing. You know, it's the, there's the, there are these heroic deeds that they do on their own. And if you think um, something like the Horus Heresy series as, as, as a chronicle, then you get the, um, the individual Primarch novels are something like the the chanson de geste of those individual paladins. Emperor is you know present, but he's he's off in the background doing his his imperial thing. Sure, yeah, and and, and it's these ones are telling their their smaller stories. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I mean, or as the whole whole episode has been like, that's really interesting, meaty stuff. Um, I kind of feel I need to go and read some Arthurian myth and try and see if I can spot any analogues to like the faithful gatekeeper, or like paired characters as some of the, um, um, you know, some some of the Primarchs are definitely like the the light and dark side of particular ideals which they present and so on. Um, but 
Is there anything else you wanted to kind of talk about with the mythical aspect of Charlemagne? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things to talk about from a kind of a modern context, the Imperium of Man is this lip service fascist state. Yeah. And everything it does harkens back to the glory days. All of these murals are the, the triumphs of the emperor. And it goes beyond the slapping of eagles on everything, and you, and you go, okay, well, why have they put eagles on everything? Well, because the Nazis put eagles on everything. It's an easy visual parallel to make. Well, why did the Nazis put eagles on everything? Because the Nazis in Germany are the Third Reich. They call themselves the Third Reich. And the Second Reich, as we talked about a few minutes ago, the Third Reich is the successor to the Second Reich, which is the German Empire that crops up in the 1870s. And that is the successor to the First Reich, these glory days of the Holy Roman Empire, when a united... Talk about the, the Franks as being French, but they are a Germanic people, you know, um, and it's this key ethos of German state building under the Nazis that they appropriate and twist and warp medieval idea of German pseudo-Christian supremacy. And they consciously adapt a lot of the imagery of the Holy Roman Empire and the eagles. I mean, look, if you look at, for example, the Austrian flag, for example, still has a, has a two-headed eagle on it uh, because that was the symbol of the Habsburg Holy Roman Empire. And that survives into Nazi propaganda. You know, it survives into kind of fascist imagery that defines itself as the continuation. And this is where you get the kind of the mythical figure of Charlemagne, right? Who... Uh, and it's a problem, you know, it's alive and well today. There's this whole weird corner of the far right that basically likes to pretend that they're still on the Crusades. And they will talk about Charlemagne, you know, the importance of defending the West and defending Christian values and mapping onto this kind of unity through the creation of an external threat. Yes, and I mean, that's very Imperium of Man. And they're very Imperium of Man. And, you know, our hobby does sometimes have a problem with people who don't consider the Imperium to be bad guys. Sure. You know, there was a, a case quite recently, wasn't there, in Spain, someone turned up to play a tournament draped in some kind of far-right Francoist symbology you know um mm. and it's you know it's, it's a case that games workshop have had to make frankly far too many times given the context of the game 40k is not for fascists well and it is not aspirational yeah yeah you guys are the butt of the joke in this you know the imperium are not the good guys there is this definite crossover between people who might think of the imperium of man as a good thing and people who will unironically talk about Charlemagne as this saviour of Europe and this saviour of great Western values. And I think it's kind of an important thing to touch upon that if you look at the kind of the values that we have, Europe is a, is a mess. There never is this united Europe. This, this great alliance of, of uh, European Christendom that stands as the bulwark against the Muslim threat or whatever, that never exists. You know, Charlemagne, you know, the Battle at Poitiers was, was a raid, you know, it was never an invasion. He spends more time eking out his own personal kingdom in the Germans than he ever, you know, if he was interested in being the saviour of Christendom, he'd have campaigned in Spain. He doesn't. He spends most of his life campaigning in Italy and, and Northern Europe. People talk about the Crusades. Well, sure, the First Crusade captured Jerusalem. The Second Crusade is a perfect illustration of the Imperium of Man. You know, the Second Crusade 
gets to a field outside Damascus and they spend most of their time arguing with each other and then they all die. <laughs> and the third crusade fractures because uh, Richard the Lionheart goes, I'm not having a duke's flag next to my flag because I'm a king and throwing that off the roof and the German, the German duke, I think it was, Leopold or whatever, who who goes off in a half. Um, and I can absolutely see on, a, on an imperial crusade some kind of Marshal Helbrecht or something going, I'm not having some filthy Imperial Guard banner right next to the one of the Black Tempires. Get away! Um, you know, and, and storm yeah, off I mean, in a half. There's a wonderful short story about... It's a rogue trader and an Inquisitor who basically almost come to blows over who gets to control this certain piece of archaeotech that they find on the planet, and they're so busy arguing with each other that they don't notice the orc war that turns up. You know, and they're so busy arguing over which one of them controls the planet and who has the rights to do this. Suddenly there's a stomper coming through the gate. And that shows that Games Workshop are very aware of the dysfunctionalness of it and they constantly work that into the stories. Absolutely. The the latest in the Dawn of Fire series, when uh, the the wolf time, the Indomitus Crusade shows up at Fenris. And the first reaction of the Space Wolves isn't, hurrah, we're saved. It's, why is Gilliman showing up here? with a bunch of new marines. Is he trying to take us over? Their first reaction is paranoia. You know, they almost go to war with the Indomitus Crusade that showed up to rescue them. And, you know, the Imperium is never unified and the Imperium is its own worst enemy. And throughout medieval history, what is, what's the great enemy of Christendom? It's Christendom. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, when you just look at the, the Catholic-Protestant wars, I mean, that tears up. Europe for hundreds of years and does far more damage than any of the external threats. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's this um, Gilliman at the start of the Elmer's Crusade, he says, he says, it's not arrogant to say that I'm the only person that can do this. And he said, one day this will all fall apart and my job is to be as successful as I can before the Imperium being the Imperium, all of this kind of consensus that I've built inevitably falls apart. And there's a moment in the kind of the, the siege of Vienna the end of the 17th century. Vienna's under siege. There's this cry for help and you get this great alliance of, of European powers and they're led by the Poles and it's this kind of last great huzzah of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, Sabaton write a song about it and everything. You know, they show up and Vienna is saved and they defeat the Ottomans and almost immediately the coal coalition falls apart and, you know, within a century Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth has dissolved. It's been gobbled up between Prussia and Russia and everything goes to pot and you know every time there's a moment of unity everything is underwhelmed by these secular politics of everyday power there never is this pan-cultural pan-faith unity or there very rarely is and when there is it never lasts and you know Charlemagne's the same thing he forges this empire he dies and within a generation it falls apart into bitter civil war <laughs> and I think that's a wonderful note to end on, <laughs> or at least end that part of it. And the last section I just wanted to talk about is any ideas you have or any ideas that have crossed your mind of how you incorporate these sorts of ideas into our hobby. Have you found that this that this knowledge has has affected you? Does this influence them? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm mostly a guard player. Is that the historical nerd in you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean. <laughs> Who doesn't want to have legions of tanks and waves of infantry and you know pretend it's Stalingrad all over again? Um, it's not my approach. I'm, I'm more of the combat acrobats angle, really. So I don't think there are many historical analogues for the Harlequins. No, that might that might be a slightly harder one to place. 
I mean, there are definitely mythological analogs. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I'm I'm gonna go there. <laughs> I'm gonna go there. Um, but yeah, sort of like with this European stuff. Yeah, it's about. it's a common thing for every game that you play against someone who's got orcs or nids or uh, you know chaos wings. You you find out yourself going for against uh, Primaris. I can't, I can't remember what the statistic, but you know the the proportion of, of the community that plays Space Marines far outweighs you know anyone that plays anything else because they're the poster boys. And then you go, okay, well, uh, how do I, you know, in my head justify if you're playing, you know, you're playing narrative games. I'm sure there are some people who perhaps to throw the competitive community under the bus, but there are some people who play for the game, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's counters and they might love the lore, but they are able to put that to one side. But in coming up for rationale for a game, often, often will people will say, is it a training mission or like things like that and sometimes it's fun to you know to go okay well i'm playing i've playing a guard army i'm playing against someone who's got tyranids but the terrain that's set up on this board is an eldar ruin how has this happened and you try and come up with these stories in your head and you think well and people you see people go all the time well what justification is there for you know i've got a sisters of battle force and i'm playing the space marines or I've got a Mechanicus Force and I'm playing the Imperium, but surely we're all on the same side. And you go, well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But uh, <laughs> it's like what we were saying a minute ago, you know, Euro- European history is riven with these events, the armies that theoretically are on the same side going to war with each other. Charlemagne, his, his sons spend half of their time going to war with their own nobles. And their own brothers, you know, it, and, and against that background, it's not too hard to say, oh, well, it makes sense that my guard army is fighting a force of blood angels or, you know. That's what this this chat has absolutely fundamentally changed the way I think about the Imperium. Just that there was some part of me, because I think because of the the idea of the Imperial Guard as a sort of an army of a modern nation state that I still, a little bit of me persisted still in thinking of the Imperium as a dysfunctional but still existing state. And what you're talking about now and, and what this chat has made clear to me is like the the Emperor as a god figure, as the Charlemagne figure, they're not actually the same countries. They're this kind of loose affiliation and they have their own prides. And actually, yeah, these civil wars are the norm. They're not the exception. And I, I, one of the things I wish they did more of is talk about Imperial and Civil Wars because like the Age of Apostasy, which you, you brought up before, that's a really, really fascinating period which I'd like to know more about. And then you have like the Badab War, which is quite a popular Forge World book, which, I mean, admittedly, that does fall towards chaos in the end. But the actual war, for a large part of it, is between loyalist chapters in fact they're all loyalist chapters at the beginning and for a big portion through and it's only towards the end that um the tyrant becomes affiliated with chaos so again i mean yeah gw do know that but it's just not something that is massively emphasized and i kind of i I really i would like to sort of bring that into my games when i when i get back to playing as the imperium it's one of the interesting things that kind of especially does crop up in 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 guard lore and you know, there's this, there's there's a lot of talk about the the Abnet verse as kind of being his own universe that's forty k flavored, but he does a really good job of this sometimes. You know, uh, if you think about um, one, I think it's supposed to be the very first Gaunt's Ghost book. You know, the the climax of the book is the ghosts 
fighting another Imperial... Sorry, spoilers if anyone hasn't read it yet. They fight another Imperial Guard regiment. It's a 20-year-old book, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's one of the later books. Um, I think it's Armour of Contempt. You know, there's, there's a point where they're in the face of this massive chaos counterattack and the whole Imperial line almost falls apart because one regiment who are noble-born... You know, they are the noble-born sons of their planet who've gone off to crusade across the stars for the Emperor, see it as beneath themselves to get the guns out and save these poor bloody infantry, you know. And it's not until someone turns up and says, you, it doesn't matter that they're, that they are hive scum. You know, you are failing in your duty to the Emperor if, if you don't take part in this battle. But, you know, it's interesting, you even within kind of, it's one of the you know, really cool lore things that even within the supposedly unified force, the Imperium is such a diverse place and has such a diversity of planets that one regiment would be too snobbish to consider helping another one, even if the fate of the battle depends on it. And, you know, that's, that is a thing that we see play out time and again in medieval history. You know, it's, that's the Siege of Damascus in a nutshell. That's the Third Crusade in, in a nutshell. Um, it's the Fifth Crusade in a nutshell. You know, there's, there's this battle in the Fifth Crusade where uh, there is a tiny English contingent of knights in the Fifth Crusade. And it's this battle outside Alexandria. And these English knights charge the, the Egyptian line and they break through. And the French go, Oh, I suppose we should advance, but there's quite a lot of them. And they just, they run away. And this English contingent <laughs> right. is strung out on a limb. And the French army, in the end, is is cut down because they waver and they, you know, they let this national rivalry get in the way of battlefield cohesion. Um, which is a an allegory for a lot of things, really, isn't it? But Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and the other, the other one I was thinking of was the... Um the Arthurian element. No, we were talking about the Knights of the Round Table as being Primarchs, but in a sense, there's also the Custodes there. And before, when I've been thinking about Custodes, I've, I know that they're all individually gene-teched, you know, masters of war and all that sort of thing, but I thought of them as, like, just being gold, you know? And, okay, yeah, if you've got those few armies like the shield bearers who are in black or whatever, but sort of something which I kind of struck this, this imagination of those beautiful eagle-headed jet bikes which they have of having those as like individually liveried medieval knights yeah absolutely i mean i mean the the one of the interesting things of course with the more recent lore with the custodians now that they've left the you know they've left terra and are out among the galaxy is that they spend as much time plotting how to kill gilliman uh you know half of their time is spent thinking well, if he does end up going a bit Horus, how do we stop <laughs> What are we going to do about it? What yeah. are we going to do about it? You know, they spend yeah. as much time running through ways to to kill their own side as they do actually taking the war to the enemy. Okay then, Dave. I think probably we've, we've covered an awful lot of medieval history and imperial history. And I am hugely grateful for your time and expertise it's been fantastic i've learned a huge amount about all these topics and um hopefully with these other things which we've touched on at various points during the episode uh hopefully we'll have you back for um in season two 
Oh, thank you very much. Tune in for more metaphysics <laughs> at a later date. <laughs> okay. All right. And with no further ado, we're going to sign off. So thanks, Dave, so much for being the first guest on 40 Curious. This has been episode one. Episode two will be following fairly shortly, which is going to be about Eldari morality with Daniel Ehrman Maggie. And we've got several other episodes lined up to uh, come fairly soon. We are on Facebook as 40 Curious with a K. We are on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you would like to contact with any feedback, if you'd be interested in commenting or even as appearing as a guest, that would be absolutely fantastic. And the last thing I wanted to do before I sign off properly is to say thank you for everyone who's been so helpful and has encouraged and given support. Thank you to Rob Bailey Boyd for doing the wonderful voice acting you hear at the beginning of the episode. And thank you to the band Eaters who provide the theme music with Dead Seconds. So until next time, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>